I wonder how many of us have stopped today to think about the awesomeness of God, or yesterday, or last week, or the span of the whole year. How many times have we stopped all the business and the treadmill that we're on to focus and wonder with amazement at the awesomeness of God? I know in our materialistic, scientific world, everything is explainable, everything has a reason, every cause has an explanation. And because of that, we have lost that sense of wonder, that sense of amazement about God. I know that children by nature have that sense of excitement, that sense of wonder, the sense of awe. And as they pass into the teen years, they go through a stage of the fantasy stage, which is really an artificial kind of a stage of wonder. And then eventually get to the adulthood, the adult world with its cold, practical, scientific explanations. And there goes the sense of wonder, the sense of amazement about God and what He has done. It is not surprising, therefore, that when you listen to the words of the Lord Jesus, He again and again saying, unless you become like a little child... Unless and until you spiritually enter into the child's world with all its awe and wonder and amazement, until you become like a little child, enter into their world spiritually and be believing and trusting, until you do this, you are risking at worst unbelief, at best cold carnality. Unless you become like little children, said Jesus. Why? Because at the heart of this loss of amazement and wonder at God and His awesomeness, there lies pride, the center of it. And when we think we can explain everything, when we cynically view everything, when we clinically rationalize everything, pride is there, lurking in the center. And in reality, even the scientists are like children playing at the beach of God's ocean of creation. The honest and the sincere scholars would tell you of the much to be learned, and the amazement of how much is still yet to be learned. And I know that spiritually there are some Christians who have ceased to read the Bible on a daily basis to learn new insights and new experiences every day. They think they've read it once or read it twice, and they know what's in it. They understand the Old Testament. They understand the New Testament. They understand the relationship between the two. And then they go on their Christian life without reading the Scripture. And yet the great men and women of God that I have read their lives, they would have read the Scripture a hundred times, and on the hundred and first time, they discover some new truth, and they get excited about it, as if they've read it for the first time in their life. Wonder at the awesomeness of God leads us into daily depth in our walk with God. Wonder at the awesomeness of God helps us determine true value in life. You know, all politicians talking about values. Everybody, even the media now, jumping on the bandwagon. Everybody's talking about values, traditional values. Yet, very few people really comprehend what values mean. Values are not derived from the culture. They are derived from our sense of wonder and awe at the awesomeness of God. In Psalm 139, that tells us what happens to a believer when he or she begin to exercise the sense of wonder and begin to reflect at the awesomeness of God. 
For in this great hymn of David, David shows us four awesome things about God. Four awesome things about God and how to apply them to our lives. First, in verses 1 to 6, he tells us about the awesomeness of God's knowledge. Secondly, on verses 7 to 12, he tells us about the awesomeness of God's presence. Thirdly, he tells us about the awesomeness of God's power, verses 13 to 18. And fourthly, he shows us the awesomeness of God's judgment, the last five verses, 19 to 24. Awesomeness of God's knowledge. The word omniscient is a big theological word, which really simply means that uh, it describes God's perfect knowledge. He knows everything in your life and in mine. He knows everything that's going on everywhere in the world all at once. He has perfect knowledge of all things. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. That's that simple. And no wonder David reflects about the awesomeness of God's knowledge, and he's overwhelmed. And here in this psalm, David applies this knowledge of God about all things and everybody. He applies it to him personally. He takes it personally, and he put the searchlights of God on his life. God, you know me inside out. And that is why his confidence is, search me, because he knows God knows everything. Now he's hiding. What does God know about us? Well, in verse 2, he knows what we do. Our daily activities, our schedules, our plans. He knows what we think before we think it. In verse 3, he knows where we go. He knows whom we see. And he either approves of it or disapproves of it. In verse 4, he knows what we say. He even knows what we say before we're going to say them. That is the awesomeness of God's knowledge. He even knows more than this. He knows the very motives of the words that we speak. Sometimes a person can say something and becomes misleading because he may have an imperfect knowledge or has lack of information or didn't understand the whole thing and it becomes a misleading statement. But then there's another person who schemes of how he's going to say things that are going to deceive somebody. God knows the difference, and He judges us on the basis of that knowledge of the difference in our motives. And that is why the psalmist often prayer the prayer in Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And in verse 5 is a very significant verse. I want you to look at it carefully. David teaches us that God knows our needs. And that is why he keeps his guiding hand and restraining hand on us. Now, this particular verse, I want you to concentrate for a minute. David is actually, and you don't get this from the English translation, believe me, but David is actually grumbling. (laughs) He really is complaining in verse 5. What is he complaining about? He said, God, you're hemming me in. (laughs) I feel I am hemmed in. I am absolutely excited at the sense of the awesomeness of your knowledge. You know everything. But you've got me hemmed in, God. You've got a big fence around me. It is your guidance to be sure. It's your protection to be sure. It's watching over me to be sure. But you're hemming me in, God. Because the word here in the Hebrew means being hemmed in, and it is the same word that is used when a city that comes under siege. When an army surrounds a wall of a city, and nobody can go out, nobody can come in. 
God put a fence around David, and David is wondering. He catches it very well. He puts it there in a form of praise, but really deep down he's complaining. Probably some of you feeling that same way. Why is God allowing this in my life? Why is He keeping the doors that I want Him to open? Why is He closing them? Why are they so bolted hard I can't get out? I am trying to get out of being hemmed in. I am tired of being hemmed in. How long am I going to be hemmed in inside this fence? Think very carefully. I know that from first-hand experience. That very fence that is hemming you in is that very fence as keeping the devil out from destroying you. God loves us so much. He cares for us so much. He knows the minutest details of every part of our lives so much that he's got you around a fence around you and you don't like it. And you're trying to kick that fence down. The very fence that he put around you, which you don't like very much right now, is that very fence that's keeping the devil out. The married person who is in a bad marriage and they feel that they want to get out of it, God is saying, listen, the very fence that you don't like is that very fence that's protecting you from a far worse situation. A single person who has prayed for years, God, give me a spouse. God is saying to you that very fence that you're in and you don't like very much is protecting you from a far worse situation. The job or the boss or the condition in which you're in, from which you want to flee. God is saying that very fence that's hemming you in, that is keeping you down, is that very fence that's protecting you from the danger of the devil. Because just as you're not able to get out of where you're being hemmed in, the devil is not able to get in. Amen? And when David reflects on the awesomeness of God's perfect knowledge, he finds himself overwhelmed. He's absolutely overwhelmed. In fact, the Apostle Paul did the same thing when he was reflecting on the awesomeness of God's knowledge. In Romans eleven thirty-three. he said, All the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You know, the reason when you feel you saw him then, and the fence is around you, and you get discouraged, is because you're counting the fence posts. <laughs> Your eye level is reaching just the fence, and you're looking at the fence, at the perimeter around you. What God, through the servant David, wants you to do is to lift your eyes up and reflect on the awesomeness of the perfect knowledge of God. That every minute detail of your life, he knows it and he's taking care of it. And the proper vision of God will never hear me right. The proper knowledge of God will never give you a big head. A proper knowledge of God is going to give you a burning heart. Secondly, the awesomeness of his presence. Verses 7 to 12. Another one of those big theological words uh, summarizes these verses is the word omnipresence. God is present everywhere at the same time. And the reason why David does not feel like a prisoner when he reflects on the awesomeness of God, despite of the fact that he knows he's hemmed in, but the fact he does not feel like a prisoner is this, is that he knows that God is inside the fence with him. Not on the outside, watching in. He is right there inside the fence. I heard the story about the mother who punished her little chubby toddler, and she put him in the playpen, and she said, you stay there. And grandpa comes in. 
And as Grandpa comes in, and the little sneaky fellow, like they all are, he, uh, he says, up, Grandpa. He has a chubby hand up. Up, Grandpa. Up, Grandpa. And Grandpa was about to pick him up. And the mother said, no, Daddy. She said, he is being punished. He has to stay in the playpen. And the little fellow just not going to give up. He said, up, Grandpa. Up, Grandpa. Up, Grandpa. Grandpa did not want to break the rule, his daughter's household. So he had to find a way. And he found a way. He got inside the playpen. <laughs> you know, that God is right there inside with you, inside that playpen, inside that fence. And the true freedom is not getting your way or doing things the way you want to do them. It is knowing what the will of God is in your life and yielding to it. And there is no geographical place or emotional place or mental place or psychological place or physical place that you can go and God is not there. There is no place where your children or your family can go and God is not there. Jonah thought that if he physically removes himself, geographically removes himself where God is and goes somewhere else, that God is going to forget about Jonah's call. But God had to bring him back to the place of obedience. Adam and Eve thought that if they hide, if they just get out of the way, God is going to forget where they are. God didn't. He knew exactly where they were, and he brought them into the place of confronting their sin. Solomon tried to lavish upon himself a luxurious lifestyle, a lavish lifestyle. He thought that will get God to forget about him. But ultimately he said, oh, how foolish I was. All foolishness, the only way really to be contented is an intimate relationship with God. Listen to what God said through Jeremiah in 23, 24. He said, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. He's everywhere. David said, there is no place. Think about it. No place, not anywhere, that God is not there. That God is not in control. In verse 8, he's saying that even in the place of the dead, the Sheols, God is supreme. In verse 9, where the rises of the sun and where the sun sets and rises, God is there. In verse 10, in the bottom of the ocean, God's hand is there, and He leads and protects. And if you ask David, David, what about the nighttime? What about in the midnight, when it is dark, and when our fears and our loneliness are all exaggerated, when our problems seem to be far larger in proportion than it was in the daytime, when one feels abandoned and nobody understands the anonymity of it? What about in the dark days, when the dark times, David, in the night? <laughs> Not even then. God is there. He's not missing. God is there at the night time. He is there at the darkest alleys of your life. And in the secret places. Because darkness and light to God are the same. You cannot hide from Him. You know, when the truth about God's omnipresence, really comprehended by an unbeliever, it could be a frightening thing, it could be a threatening thing. But to the believer, it is the most wonderful thing in the world. It's the most comforting thought to know that God is with you wherever you go. He is Emmanuel. God is with us. He is the great I am. He is with us. He is the one who said, Lo, I am with you always. He is the one who said, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you and I'll uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Can't get away from it. Have you ever reflected 
on the awesomeness of God's presence and realize that because He is everywhere, we are not left without adequate resources for our life, for ministry. If you are in the will of God, you will never lack God's provision. Why? Hear this sentence. Memorize it. Because it's an old saying, but it's as true as I've experienced in my own life. Because the will of God will never lead you to where the hand of God cannot keep you. The will of God will not take you, will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. It was the Apostle Paul's sense of the awesomeness of the presence of God that sustained him through tough times when he dealt with some treacherous people that were out to get him, when he dealt with some treacherous situations in the shipwreck and in the ro- on the land. And in the middle of it, in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, he could hear the audible voice of the Lord Jesus said to him, Don't be afraid, Paul, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or hurt you. No wonder he testifies years later, just about he's getting ready to die, when he was in the prison writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, and he said, Timothy, he said, Although no one stood with me, but all forsook me, yet the Lord stood with me. He strengthened me. And when you truly reflect on the awesomeness of God's presence with us all the time, as you walk in the will of God, you will fear no circumstances. You will fear no loneliness. You will fear no oppositions. You're not going to fear any diseases. You're not going to fear, you're not going to fear, period. Because God is with you. Then third awesome thing about God here, verses 13 to 18, is the awesomeness of God's power. God is not only omnipresent, He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can do all things. Not some things. Not like some people believe that He deliberately limits His own power. He does not. God can do all things. In another Psalm 19, David thinks about the awesomeness and the power of God, the unlimited power of God, and he applied that to nature. The heavens declare the glory of your name. Here, he takes that power of God and he applies it to the miracle of childbirth. The awesomeness of God's power in childbirth could never be fully comprehended by the study of genetics or anatomy or obstetrics. And that is why it's tragic and tragic and tragic thing when some people look upon the fetus as a nuisance thing, it is to be removed just like an appendix. Instead of seeing it as a miracle to be admired, it is the crown of God's creation. In those verses 13 to 18 of Psalm 139, David tells us that God is the author of life. He is the one who formed our inward parts. He is the one who arranges our genetic structure. And in Jeremiah 1, 5, God said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God forms us in the womb. And He knew us before we were formed. And here God is saying that He weaved us together. He shaped us together the way we are. He formed us before we became an embryo. In fact, there's some commentators who say that verses 15 and 16 of this psalm are really probably a description of the development of the child in the womb. 
And when you think about it, just for the little information that I know, of 10 million nerve cells in the brain, 300,000 separate nerve endings in the body, 200 bones and all structured, and 500 muscles big and small, and all designed to work perfectly together. It's a miracle of God. And verse 16, he teaches us that God made us the way we are, and therefore we must accept ourselves for who we are, and not try to be somebody else. We must develop and use what God has given us instead of sitting down and moping and moaning and complaining about what we are not, or what we could have been, or what we have not. Jesus teaches us in the parable of the talent that God does not give all the same number of talents to everybody. Some have more, some have less. And God is not going to judge us on the basis of how many talents we have. He's going to judge us on the basis of how faithful we were with the talents He's given us. Don't complain to God for the way you are, the way He made you. He has a purpose in that. Ask Him to use you to accomplish His purpose for which you are made, for which He formed you, for which He made you. In fact, verse 16 is a profound verse in teaching us that only God brings life into being and only God can take life out. And I want to tell you, therefore, it means so clearly that suicide, abortion, or so-called mercy killing is where man is trying to play God and it will not work. In fact, David was awestruck at God's power in forming the little baby and supervising the growth of the little baby in the womb. So he responds with praise to God as he reflects of all the goodness of God informing him. In verse 14 he'll say, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Have you reflected on the awesomeness of God's power in forming you just the way you are? In bringing you up in the family in which he has brought you up in? doesn't matter what you like or what you don't like. In giving you the friends that he has provided you with. And in the opportunities that he presented you and gave you. Verses 17 and 18, David records how riveted as he meditates on God's thought toward him. He becomes so excited. He becomes so intense that you see it even in the words. This is not about David thinking about God. David is excited about the way God thinking of David. God thinks of you all the time. He's thinking about you right now. Even when you are not thinking about yourself, even when you're not thinking about God, even when you get too busy to think of Him, He is thinking of you. He doesn't get too busy. When you get preoccupied and I get preoccupied and don't think of God, He doesn't get preoccupied to think of you. Even when you go to sleep at night, He never sleeps. He's awake. Just like a mother carries a sleepy baby in her arm. She's awake. He's asleep. God is not asleep. He's watching us sleep. He's watching over you. He's watching over me. Finally, the awesomeness of God's judgment. Last five verses of this psalm, Psalm 139, verses 19 to 24. I know that this whole question of the judgment of God, of the wicked and the disobedient, and the unbeliever. It troubles some people. I see it all the time. It troubles a lot of people. I think what compounds the problem is the pressure that we receive from a secular media, 
from a humanist perspective, that tend to make us think with sentimentality rather than think the way God thinks. We see things from a sentimental point of view, not from God's point of view, and that makes it tougher. We don't see it from God's eyes. And what happens when we think sentimentally rather than think God's thought? We tend to invert God's order of things. We reverse God's plan for creation. And that is why you see and you found that the very people who support abortion on demand often are the very people who oppose the capital punishment for the criminals and for the murderers. They invert God's plan. God judges wickedness and rewards righteousness. And the world reverses the process. They reverse the order. They will condone sin and permit wickedness to go unrestrained and unjudged. And when Christians follow suit and develop a mushy, weak view of sin, when Christians become sentimentalists like the world, they will cease to be a spiritual people. A friend of mine some years ago told me that he was a token evangelical on a committee for examining candidates for ordination. And when a candidate comes through who has a questionable moral situation, and when he, the moment he raises that question, the rest of the committee attack him. You are being judgmentalist. And on the rare occasion, when a conservative candidate comes through who loves the Lord, obeys the Lord, respects His Word, they often vote him out. He asks, why? Because he is too rigid. <laughs> you see what I mean by inverting God's standards. They reverse God's order. They skew God's plan. But I have to hasten to say, on this fourth point, because we live in the New Testament, and the psalmist didn't, because we live in the light of Calvary, it is very important for us to understand that we do leave the ultimate judgment to God. We must hate sin because God hates sin. We must hate sin in our lives. We must hate sin in anybody's life, but we must love the sinner, care for the sinner, accept the sinner, pray for the sinner, rebuke the sinner, encourage him to come to the foot of the cross, but we must love him and her. That is why Jesus taught us to pray for our enemies, to pray for our persecutors. Why? He said, leave the judgment to me. You judge by what you know. Because ultimately God is going to judge him, and God's judgment is awesome. Well, David had just considered the awesomeness of God's knowledge, the awesomeness of God's presence, and the awesomeness of God's power. And here he is meditating on the awesomeness of God's judgment. You know, people ask and say, if God knows everything, and if God has the power to do all things, why is wickedness continuing in the world? Why doesn't God do something about it? The tragedy is these people don't know that God already has. God settled sin's problem at the cross. That is why the cross is a stumbling block. He himself suffered for us so that we 
cannot accuse him of doing nothing. He has offered the way. He has shown us the way. He paid the price. I read the story about a man, I think the name spelled Shemel or Shamil, who was a leader of the Caucasian people that had long resisted the Russian advances into the area there between the Black and Caspian Sea. But among his people, Shamil discovered that there is bribery and corruption were rampant and it's on, on the increase. So he passed a severe law. He said those who are convicted of bribery should be brought to the whipping post and receive a hundred lashes on their bare back. The first offender was Shemel's mother. Would he spare her? Would he order the hundred lashes on his mother's bare back? Love said, release her. Justice said, punish her. And the people were appealing for a verdict, for a decision. Then came the sentence, take her to the whipping post. And after five strokes had descended on her bare back, Shemel said, stop, release her. And then he stripped off his uniform and his shirt. And he said, I shall take the rest of the lashes. As his mother looked, he received 95 lashes on his bare back. Justice was satisfied. And love bore the brunt of the penalty. Jesus did not only pay 95%, he paid all the 100% of the penalty. For your sins and for mine. He paid it all. And that is why His judgment is awesome. That is why in the day of judgment, no one can accuse God of not providing a way. In the day of judgment, no one will be able to accuse God that He didn't care. In the day of judgment, no one will be able to say to God, God, you're not giving me a fair shake. God's judgment is going to be based on whether we've chosen the cross as our salvation or not. Have you? Thus the psalmist, in the last two verses, he concludes as he began and says, God, conduct a spiritual investigation in my life. Conduct a spiritual investigation on me. Sure, God, I am grieved and I'm stricken by the wickedness of sin. Oh, but God, I want to be sure that I am not grieving your heart by my sin. You see, we can't judge sin in somebody else's life unless we're willing to judge sin in our lives, in our own hearts. Otherwise, we'll become a Pharisaic in our Christianity. And if you are caught up in the awesomeness of God's knowledge and God's presence and God's power, you will not fear the awesomeness of His judgment. You know, I want to tell you truthfully, I, every single day, Invite, without any fear, invite God to judge me and judge my life and to search my heart and to point out there's a sin in my life I'm not even aware of. To show me. Why? Because I know when I invite God's judgment in my life, He will exercise mercy. 
But if I refuse God's searching light and God's conviction of me and God's judging me, then I'm inviting His justice and I cannot stand. I don't know about you, but I cannot stand His justice. God knows everything. He cannot make a mistake. God is everywhere. He will not leave us nor forsake us. God can do all things. Therefore, I live in the shadow of His power. God is fair and just. He will deal with me justly and mercifully. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.